You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 111, The September Campaign, Part 3, Justifiable Bad Choices. This week, a big thank you goes out to Stephen, Brian, and Roz for choosing to become members. They now get access to ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes. You can head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more. Polish leaders, both political and military, understood that in a war with either of their larger neighbors, they would be in a difficult situation. Two military plans for a defensive war would be created, one that dealt with the threat posed by Germany, Plan West, and one that would place Polish forces in position to meet an attack from the Soviet Union, Plan East. We will spend most of our time today discussing the details in the evolution of Plan West, as it would be the plan that would be enacted in the weeks before the German invasion. But the key underlying idea of both plans was that the Polish military had zero hope of winning the war by themselves. The resources and manpower simply did not exist. This meant that the survival of Poland was heavily dependent on the actions of allies, allies that would eventually be France and Britain. Due to the importance of Allied action, after we discuss the Polish plans of national defense, the back half of this episode will cover some of the military planning that would occur between the Polish military and primarily the French military in the years before the war. When trying to plan for a future war, Polish military and political leaders had to create their plans within the constraints placed on Poland. Before we discuss what the plans made by the Polish leaders would be, we first have to walk through some of these constraints and how they attempted to address them. Last episode, we discussed some of the economic and industrial problems that Poland would attempt to rectify during the 1930s, to varying degrees of success. But in some ways, those were the easy ones, because they they involved concrete steps that could be taken to try and solve the problem, like they were directly addressable. Another issue, and one that would not be so quickly solved, was around manpower. The Polish military would always be smaller than Germany or the Soviet Union, and while its maximum number would be about 1.5 million troops, only about half of that number could be reliably equipped. To try and help mitigate the issues caused by having a smaller population and a smaller military, Poland would always look to mobilize its troops earlier than its enemies. 
By starting that mobilization process as early as possible, weeks before a conflict, ideally, the Polish military could ensure that the largest possible percentage of its total manpower pool was not just in the process of mobilization, but also that the men had time to join their units, maybe do some refresher training for the older reservists, and then move into position. This early mobilization strategy was a central part of Polish military plans as early as 1926, and it would continue to be within those plans until the start of the war. There was also thought given to the fact that open mobilization could be seen as an aggressive act, and therefore there was a scheme for secret mobilization put in place, whereby in the event that the government wanted to begin mobilization, cards would be mailed to men all over Poland to begin their mobilization based on the color of the cards that were mailed to them. However, this method would be slower than an open and public mobilization, and there were limits to how much could be done while still remaining secret. By the summer of 1939, the planning made by the Polish general staff was based on the assumption that to fully mobilize its military, Poland would need an entire month. It was also understood that it was unlikely that there would be a full month to mobilize during peacetime, and therefore the plans involved moving all the regular army units and anything that was mobilized to the frontier when the war started. Then, behind these units, mobilization would continue for as long as was necessary, with more troops moving up to the front as they were ready. One of the problems that this plan would run into was the fact that a good piece of the Polish population was in the western areas of the nation, which meant that in the event of a war with Germany, those areas needed to be held for as long as possible, not just for the purposes of, you know, holding on to as much territory as possible, but also to allow for the mobilization of their populations. All of this meant that an early mobilization and a full and public mobilization as soon as war seemed to be inevitable was essential to Polish defense. Absolutely essential. This will get mentioned in a later episode, but I think it's really important at this moment to say why the Polish military would not be able to openly mobilize early enough in August 1939. While it was still later than they may have liked, the Polish army wanted to begin full open mobilization on August 30th. But on that date, the order was rescinded, not due to a different decision made by Polish leadership, but due to pressure from Britain and France, who did not want the Polish mobilization order to cause a war. It would then be ordered, the mobilization, again the next day, and this time the order would stand, but a full and and very important day would be lost due to political pressure from Poland's most important allies. Along with the need to mobilize the populations of western Poland, there was another reason that territory had to be held in that area, and one that would really become a major part of Polish planning later in the 1930s. The root of this change was political, and specifically the decisions made by Poland's most important allies, Britain and France, in the years before the war. If you look at a map of Poland in 1939, there are a few facts that you will notice. The first is that there is a corridor of Polish territory sandwiched between two German-controlled territories, with that being the, the main territory of Germany to the west, and then Prussia to the east. Another fact was that with the conquest of Czechoslovakia, German control in the south had extended by hundreds of kilometers along Poland's southern border. This made much of central and southern Poland look like a giant salient pushing out into Germany. Now, if you were to overlay a topographical map from Poland in 1939, you would notice that there was the Vistula River that almost bisects Poland along what could almost be described as the base of that salient. 
The Vistula might have been the basis for a defensive line that could have reduced the length of front that the outnumbered Polish army was required to defend, but there were three major reasons that the border with Germany, as exposed as much of it was to German attacks and as much as it stretched Polish resources even thinner, had to be defended. The first was the manpower issue that I discussed you know, just a moment ago. There were many cities in this area where mobilization would not be completed in time. The second was economics. The western areas of Poland and in areas like Silesia were, were very important to the Polish economy and the Polish war effort if it extended out into months and maybe even years. That territory, if it was continued to be held by Poland, would be very valuable. Both of these were, were very solid reasons to defend the territory, and any military planner, when planning for a long war, might have considered that enough to place troops on the German border. But there were some areas where this logic did not apply, like the Polish corridor in northern Poland, which while important for Polish access to the sea, would be useless for economic purposes in a war with Germany because Germany would probably control the Baltic. However, this area would still be defended by the Polish army, with valuable manpower and equipment put in place in the corridor, even though there was no real hope of defending it, and their destruction was not a question of if, but really a question of when, if, if, especially if they could not retreat fast enough. So why did they do this? Why, why did they put those troops there? Because the Polish leaders were afraid, not of decisions made in Berlin, but decisions that could be made in London and Paris. The Polish corridor and the Polish border areas in Poznia and Pomerania had to be defended to protect against one scenario. Germany marching its military in, grabbing the border areas, and then suing for peace with Britain and France, saying that it is all of Poland that they wanted and they would stop. The Polish leaders were essentially afraid of being put in the same position as Czechoslovakia in 1938, with Germany demanding that important border territories be handed over, and then being forced by Britain or France to give the into German demands due to threats of complete abandonment by the Western countries if they did not give in. Basically, Poland had to sacrifice thousands of men in exposed and nearly suicidal positions because they were fearful that it was the only way to guarantee that Britain and France would enter the war, and it was only through them entering the war that Poland had any long-term chance of success in a war with Germany. This scenario might seem far-fetched to us in our retrospective omniscience from the year 2022, but from the perspective of the summer of 1939 and from Poland, the risk seemed much higher. Czechoslovakia had had an alliance with France, one that guaranteed its borders and that France would join in a war to protect them. And yet after the Munich Agreement, an agreement that had been made without a single representative of the Czechoslovak government present, it was made clear to Czech leaders that they would have to sign away its territory or they would be left alone to face German military attacks. In the months that followed, the rest of Czechoslovakia had been abandoned to German conquest, or at the very least strong German influence in the case of Slovakia. Polish leaders were not completely convinced that the same might not happen to them, that Germany might just nibble off a, a bit of territory and then start negotiating with British and French leaders to secure claims to Polish territory, and there might not even be a Polish representative in the room. And so they made the decision to put the Polish military in a far worse position, with several divisions of troops in horrible positions, not because they thought it was the best position for them to be in, but because it seemed to be a political necessity. While acknowledging the problems that they faced, another important aspect of Polish planning revolved around what they expected the Germans to do if they attacked. In the mid-1920s, as the German military had stabilized into the Reichswehr, 
Polish staff studies believe that the German attack, if it were to happen, would largely take the form that it would actually end up taking in 1939, a two-pronged attack that would utilize German forces attacking along the southern Polish border, as well as troops attacking in the north, both from Pomerania and from Prussia. It was believed that these group concentrations, acting kind of as a pincer, would attempt to converge on Warsaw. As a basic outline, this is pretty much exactly what would happen in 1939, making it a great basis for Polish planning throughout the 1930s. In 1936, a major update to Polish defensive plans would be started, as it became clear that German and Soviet military capabilities were greatly expanding due to both nations' rearmament efforts. This was coupled with the beginning of a serious rearmament plan that we discussed last episode. At the time, the Soviet Union appeared to be the most dangerous threat, although the threat of an attack from Germany never completely went away. A plan would be developed for a war with either nation, with the appropriate names of Plan East and Plan West. From 1936 to 1938, most of the planning effort went into preparations for a war with the Soviets, and therefore into Plan East. This would change after 1938 and the Anschluss, and the importance of Plan West would only grow between the Anschluss and the start of the war. At the time that the plans were developed, the belief was that it was likely that Germany could amass about 70 divisions to attack Poland while maintaining the proper defenses of its western borders against the possibility of French attacks. But there was the belief that it was likely that this number of divisions would grow as German rearmament efforts continued. The Polish army would be thinly stretched to try and man the entire border region, and that was even before the German takeover of Czechoslovakia in March 1939. When this took place, most of the previous planning and positioning of Polish troops had to be reworked. The previous very heavy focus on the northern areas of the country suddenly had to shift in anticipation for a German attack out of Slovakia. To meet the expected German attack, seven armies would be positioned on the Polish-German border. Starting from the north, facing East Prussia, would be the armies of the Narav, Modlin, and then in the corridor would be the Pomors army, then continuing south along the border would be armies Posden, Lodz, and Krakow, and then in the south would be the Carpathian army. The largest change from previous troop concentrations that would occur during the summer of 1939 was the strengthening of the two southern army groups, Krakow and Carpathian, which were both close or on the Czechoslovak border. All of these armies on the border were there not just to make it clear that Poland was defending its territory, but also as a shield behind which the rest of the Polish military could be mobilized. This meant that they were planning to have a retreat. (laughs) You know, they they were planning to retreat due to German attacks. It was just going to happen. There was the hope that some armies would be able to retreat slower, like the Krakow army, which would guard the crucial areas of western Poland around Krakow, but they would all retreat generally to the east, eventually, generally towards Warsaw. The final defensive line would be on the Vistula, which cut through the middle of Poland and would provide the best possible defensive line on which to finally stop the German attack. The exact nature of the retreat, or where planned retreating would stop, was generally left as basic outlines, with the plan being to improvise the precise course of the campaign based on the events that occurred along the way. But the plan, really, was just simply to buy time, to buy as much time as possible. This time would be used to get additional forces ready, to mobilize them and equip them and and get them organized, and then use them as counterattack forces as the Germans approached Warsaw from what would probably be multiple different directions. But this counterattack would only really be launched, or could only really be launched with any hope of success, 
after Poland's allies had went on the offensive in the West to pull German resources into another theater and, and away from the heart of Poland. It was absolutely critical that those allies come into the war soon after it started and that they very quickly would move into an offensive against Germany to capitalize on the fact that most of the German army would be in Poland. It didn't even necessarily have to be an offensive that was designed to knock Germany out of the war. It just had to be enough to force Germany into moving troops out of Poland. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. From the nation's earliest days, the Polish leaders tried to ensure that it had allies in a war with either Germany or the Soviet Union. The military alliance signed with France in 1921 was clearly targeted at Germany and would bring either nation into a war with Germany if it attacked the other. The status of the Soviet Union in the Franco-Polish alliance was more complicated. There was a secret protocol that would still require France to join in a war between the Soviet Union and Poland, but France would be of far less direct assistance. There was an ally that was far closer to Poland, Romania, which was also very concerned about possible Soviet advances into its own territory. Romania had fewer resources than even Poland, but that did not mean that it's, you know, it's good to have some help. But regardless of who its allies were, Poland knew that they had to exist in a war with either of its larger neighbors, which was part of the reason that the British guarantee in the spring of 1939 was such a big deal. It added another major nation to Poland's plans for a coalition war, even if the guarantee was not quite as emphatic, maybe, as Poland would have wanted. When Poland Foreign Minister Beck traveled to London to finalize the public declaration in early April 1939 about the guarantee, he was also hoping that the guarantee would result in real, tangible, and immediate military aid to Poland. Poland wanted loans for rearmament purchasing and access to British and French armament firms with some kind of higher priority on their orders. They also, of course, wanted firm guarantees of military action and real plans to be put in place for that action. Chamberlain and the British viewed the guarantee more as a warning to Hitler and as a precursor to a wider set of collective security agreements that would dissuade Hitler from further expansion. And this touches on the sticking point of the agreements that Poland made with both France and Britain. The two sides just viewed the agreements differently. No matter what they said, and they would say many things, 
For France and Britain, the agreements with Poland were seen as a counterweight to German strength, but one that was primarily designed to distract Germany from a full-on early attack on France. For Poland, the agreements were seen as vital to national survival, and with that increased urgency came an increased desire for concrete plans of action. Polish leaders did not want vague guarantees and, and vague promises. They wanted precise timings for attacks and a firm commitment of resources. Now, they would get these guarantees, especially during the spring of 1939, when tensions were high and the spirit of cooperation was at its peak. In mid-May, there would be four days of discussions between Polish and French military leaders, and Poland would finally be able to get a firm commitment with a timetable for French action. Now, this agreement would say, in part, quote, In the event of a German attack on Poland, or in the event of a threat to Polish vital interests in Danzig, the French Air Force would immediately start operations in accordance with a previously established plan. The army would start an offensive with limited objectives on the third day after the mobilization. If the main German forces were directed against Poland, France would start a great offensive with the bulk of its forces on the 15th day after the mobilization. In the first phase of the war, Poland was to wage only a defensive campaign. If the main German forces were directed against France, the Polish army would attempt to tie up as many German divisions as possible. End quote. These were major promises of French action, but they were mitigated by two important factors. The first was the fact that they were only to be considered binding after a new political agreement was developed and signed between the two nations, and that political agreement would not be signed until the beginning of September. The second factor was the fact that, as far as I can tell, the French army and General Gamelin, who led the discussions on the French side, never actually planned on delivering on their promises, a lie we will dig into further in future episodes. On the British side, the discussions were largely the same, with military discussions involving the Polish pushing for concrete commitments from Britain primarily to use the Royal Air Force in bombing offensives against Germany. This type of strategic bombing campaign was why the Royal Air Force had a bomber command, and why so much money had been spent on expanding British bombing capabilities. There was even a plan in place to bomb the industrial Ruhr area, but there was a concern in London that such attacks would simply antagonize the Germans and cause them to target British cities. They would eventually agree to launch a bombing campaign, although again, their actions in the early weeks of the war make it clear that such promises were not taken very seriously. There were also some economic agreements reached during these discussions, with Poland given export credits to use to purchase British military goods, but little of that would arrive before the war started. While discussions were happening with Poland, there were also talks happening just between the British and French, and this mostly revolved around the plan of waiting to attack when a war started, and instead of an early offensive to help the Poles in their desperate struggle, Britain and France would play the long game, building up their strength over a period of months or maybe even years, before finally attacking Germany with overwhelming strength. To, so to summarize, here at the end of the episode, Poland developed a defensive plan that it knew it was already compromising out of a fear that it would give the Germans an easy out if they wanted to sue for peace. Even if they had not compromised it in such a way, Poland was still entirely dependent on the actions of other nations if it wanted to have any chance of successfully defending itself against a German or Soviet attack. Those other nations were formulating their own plans, which did not involve a quick and speedy dispatch of the cavalry to come to Poland's aid. 
Poland would do its best to extract promises from its allies in Western Europe that they, that they would launch these offensives that it desperately needed, and they would eventually get those promises. But there's little evidence that those promises were actually something that meant something and that would be kept. Thank you for listening to this episode of History of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me next episode as we start looking at the German preparations for their invasion of Poland.